0: Bill. I'm going to begin with a uh, confession. Uh, I have been uh, discouraged lately, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about why I've been discouraged. There are reasons for it. I'm not going to be sharing those with you right now. Uh, but I have struggled with not fixing my eyes on Jesus, which is where I need to be. Here's the truth. My, my problem's or like describing a hangnail to a cancer ward. Nothing. My mind knows that. But my heart lovingly says to my mind, shut up, I'm wallowing here. So, uh, and then I opened the newspaper uh, late this week and read that my ex-brother-in-law died my sister's first husband, and in that obituary, I was stunned uh, to read that the daughter that he and my sister adopted, my niece, preceded him in death. I had no idea. That part of my family is really very complicated. Uh, You don't really know about it. But it's enough to say right now that uh, the the results of sin can be very devastating. Later that same day, I learned that a dear friend of mine up in Dayton, a surgeon, died of this virus. Memorial service to be scheduled in months ahead, the way things are these days. And then I read scriptures that are to encourage me in hard times, James Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Peter says, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Paul in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But I'm going to be very honest with you. My preference is not to read these scriptures in the trials, but to read these scriptures about the trials while I'm in times of flourishing. I'd rather apply them theoretically and not actually. Thank you very much. And I think some of you can identify with this. And I I really hope you do know that when Lewis and I are teaching God's Word, when we say to you, do this, or you should think that way, we are preaching to ourselves too. You do know that. Uh, and, And thankfully... God does not demand instantaneous adjustment in our thinking over grieving or over hard things, but allows us to take time to process and take thoughts captive and renew our minds. Hey, Gary, consider it all joy. Oh, it's done. No, that's not the way things work in Scripture, and God knows that, and he treats us accordingly. So what does Satan and his strategies and the passages that Bill read to you have to do with us as a church family today? Well, I have resisted labeling these days of COVID-19 as, quote, hard times. Because in America, and I know it's different elsewhere, but in America, we're not being aggressively persecuted. We don't lack food, shelter, transportation, iPhones, a lot of other things. But because of this virus, our lives have been upended. And here's the deal. As a church family... We haven't been together. There there has been no holy kiss. And and you understand the way which scripture applies that. Social distancing really feels like anti-social distancing. There have been no people in my home. There has been no church-wide pavilion fellowships. Most meetings have been on a 2D screen, like right now. Uh, most if if, if, well let me just back up and say I think the worst the hardest thing of all has been there's been no communion the bread, the cup we're addressing that we'll get word to you about that later but we've tried to maintain the communication with you to sustain the one another's and, and address those as at least as much as we're aware of them Um, but I am officially allowing myself to say that in terms of our church family, this qualifies as hard times. And when we do return to full fellowship, I hope and pray we appreciate it all the more. Now, because of Lewis's quarantining, and he's out there with you all. Hi. Because of Lewis... Oh, he just said, hi back at you. Because of Lewis's quarantining, uh, he, he was actually going to be finishing up in, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, and he, and he will. Uh, so we're preaching out of sequence today. I'm, I'm here, uh, as you uh, uh, may have noticed, and he's preparing to continue and, and complete chapter 5. Uh, I could have brought something to you that's unrelated uh, because there are a lot of wonderful themes in Scripture that we can, lots of things that uh, are exciting to study about. But what I thought I would do, and, and he and I talked about this, was to connect Second Peter and what, some of the things that we've learned there to an Old Testament case study. Um, the passage that Bill read speaks of your adversary, the devil, and describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I want to begin by, by briefly looking at who we're dealing with from chapter 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. And then examine a character whose life experience describes exactly what Peter is talking about. I want to stand on 1 Peter and look back at Job. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion, an active predator. Satan, Satan, is actually a Hebrew, from a Hebrew root, which means to oppose at law. Remember, John describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. In the midst of suffering, he accuses. He accuses God. He accuses you. In the midst of COVID-19, whether it's COVID-19 or whether you have struggles with your marriage or whether you have struggles with your job or with unemployment, Or illness or chronic health issues, whether it's a rebellious child or a a difficult older parent, or just discouragement, or perhaps depression, the accuser will nudge you to think God isn't strong enough to handle this for you. Or if God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. This is child abuse. Both Old Testament and New Testament makes it clear that Satan accuses both us and God. But 1, Peter 2, I'm sorry, 1 John 2.1 says, Not only is there an accuser, but we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who not only pleads our case, but who enables us to do what Peter says. And that is, stand firm. And in verse 9, Your ability to resist Satan is given reinforcing strength by our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. We are in this together. Now, if you haven't noticed it yet, 1 Peter deals a lot with suffering. And and in some ways, it is sort of the Job of the New Testament, but in the form of an epistle. What we see in exhortation in 1 Peter, we see acted out in Job. And there in Job, front and center, is your adversary, the devil. Now, I have studied the book of Job quite a bit, and so that's why my mind, it's, it's more we've gone through First Peter, the more my mind has gone back to Job. Uh, I've studied that over the years, and when we speak of your adversary, the devil, especially in this time of COVID-19, I think it's, it's appropriate for us to consider some of the strategies that Satan uses in his attempt to devour us. But first, I want to give you an overview, a, a, a you know, fifty thousand uh, uh, high view of the book of Job. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Job. That's where we'll be spending the bulk of our time. In in Job chapters one and two, the curtain is pulled back so that we see what Job does not know. Satan requests permission to turn his His devouring appetite, his strategies against the most righteous man on the planet, Job. Job is also a wealthy man. Um, He's got a large family, good family. He's got a lot of wealth. Uh, Oh, I mentioned he's he's got a lot of health, too. (laughs) He's a healthy man. And he has good friends. And he has a good wife. He is totally devoted to his family and totally devoted to his Lord, and he leads his family in worship to the Lord regularly. And Satan's challenge is this. What if all those good things were taken away? Is God worthy of worship without the stuff? So Job is clueless. He doesn't know that his personal struggles on earth have their origin in heaven. Um, In the first few verses, Job is described... As being a, a godly man in verse 1. His family is, is mentioned in verse 2: seven sons and three daughters. His possessions are mentioned in the same uh, uh, verse. And then also the, uh, his devotion, his family devotion to the Lord is highlighted in verses 4 and 5. And then we come to verse 6. This is what Job does not know about. Now there was a day when the sons of God, as angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came along with them also. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then you can hear Satan's sneering response. Satan answered, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Now, see, God was not calling Satan's attention to Job to say, hey, how would you like to go after one of my choice followers? Satan had already been trying. What God was doing was exposing what was in the background and bringing Job to the forefront. And you'll notice that Satan makes it very clear that he can't get to Job because God has built that hedge about him. And look at verse 11. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, you you do get the picture of what's behind Satan's challenge here. God is not worthy of worship apart from what we get from him. He is our celestial vending machine. And if he stops vending, we stop inserting worship. So that's the idea here. All Job's so-called godliness is really uh, from selfish motives. So Satan's really the first behaviorist, right? Job is conditioned to love God. If the health and wealth are gone, the worship will evaporate. By the way, Satan does want to diminish God in your life by having you connect your devotion to Him. Your devotion to Him with your personal comfort. He wants those connected in your thinking. So in, in verses, one, verses 13 through 19, uh, we read in verse 14, uh, a messenger came to Job and basically saying that the Sabaeans attacked, they're they from the south, and took the flocks, I'm sorry, took the, the oxen and the donkeys and the crops and, and uh, killed all the servants who were working for him, the faithful servants. And I alone have escaped to tell you, verse 16... While he was still speaking, another came. The fire of God fell from heaven. That is is lightning, and it caused a big fire. And it burned the sheep, and the servants consumed them. And then in verse verse, uh, uh, 17, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid, took the camels, took the stock, slew the servants with, with the sword. And then verse 18, While he was still speaking, Another also came. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. This was a birthday celebration. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. Now, I want you to notice the, um, and by the way, we've, we saw that very thing happen out here with our first pavilion, didn't we? The wind came up under the thing, and It collapsed. Thankfully, nobody was under it. But that's exactly what happened with Job's children. So I want you to look at at the strategy of what what has happened here. Satan's strategy is to isolate Job from his possessions, from his family, and therefore from God. And if you look at what he's done here, you look at it just in terms of completeness. The the Sabaeans were a tribe from the south. Um, The fire of God from heaven, lightning was usually from storms that came from the west. That's the way it is in the Middle East. The Chaldeans were a tribe in the north. And then the great wind from across the wilderness, that's the east. Do you see what's going on here? From every corner of the globe, everything is targeting me the people I love, possessions. And notice something else. If the first report that had come in was the report about his family, his children specifically, if that had been the first thing that came, Job would never have heard the other three. But the way the strategy unfolds, it was this, then this, and then this, and then, and then. His family is is gone. He's devastated. He's destroyed. So Satan knows exactly what he's doing and how he goes about it. Now, philosophers talk about evil in two categories, natural evil and moral evil. And those categories speak about the origin of evil. There's another category, maximum evil, that refers to the victim of evil. So, natural evil and moral evil, these are interesting categories and everybody talks about them, but natural evil has no observable intention behind it. That would be the lightning, that would be the, the tornado-like winds. Um, COVID-19, that's natural evil. We're dealing with that right now. But in a fallen world, every aspect of evil is either directly or indirectly the work of Satan because he's behind the fall in Genesis Chapter 3, as Romans 5 describes. We're waiting for that redemption, as Romans 8 describes. This, imp- this is very important. Who holds Satan's reins? God does. God may permit a natural evil for his purposes. What about moral evil? This refers to the immoral choices that human beings make to murder, to steal, to kill. Uh, exactly what the Sabean and Chaldean raiders did. Today, I mean, if we look at our newspaper headlines, racism is an example of moral evil. But on the other end, race riots and looting are also examples. What's happening in Portland and Minneapolis, New York, Chicago, Seattle. Those are also examples of moral evil. So Job is in the crosshairs of both natural and moral evil. From all directions and in a certain order that's intended to devastate him. What was the reaction of this godly man? Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and... What's the next word? Speak it through your masks. What did he do? Worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All secondary and tertiary causes evaporate. God is sovereign. He's permitted this. Verse 22 tells us, Through all this Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So Satan is proven wrong. But here's the thing. Satan can't be wrong. He just can't. He can't. If God is right, then Satan's future is condemnation. He cannot accept that. He's non-falsifiable in his opinions. He cannot... Now, Satan, very clearly presented in Scripture, is a finite being. He is not omnipresent. Yup. Uh, uh, He he employs his demonic forces. He is not omnipotent. Uh, He operates by God's permission. He is not omniscient. He's very wrong about Job. But Satan is a good student of your weaknesses and of mine. He's a roaring lion. And to survive, he wants to eat. So we left Job on the ash heap, grieving and worshiping. That's kind of an interesting combination, isn't it? Grieving and worshiping. He places himself on the ash heap, which is uh, uh, a place of, of uh, regarding himself as human garbage, really. And yet at the same time, and we'll see him there again at, the end at chapter 2. But Job is struggling Uh, With this. And we see the curtain pulled back again for the dialogue between God and Satan. Uh, If you you look with me in chapter 2, verse 4, Satan again is before the Lord. And instead of Satan coming and saying, you know, you were right. Instead of that, Satan simply cannot be wrong. He said, skin for skin. That's an Ancient Near Eastern bartering term. Job is worse than I thought. He has traded his children's skins for his own. As long as he's okay, doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. That's the attitude that Satan had. Now, you understand, Satan imputes to Job motives that Satan himself would have. That's the only way he can understand it. Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So at this point, Satan disappears from the book of Job while Job is left trying to make sense of what has happened to him. And, and the rest of the book is really a description, a diary, if you will, of Job and his internal struggles in his view of God. He struggles against believing that what he has gone through is senseless. He it has to make some sense, but he doesn't know what it is. Everything's been stripped away. And his wife wants him to curse God and die, I believe, out of love. I believe she's a good woman. He, she's she's going to remain his wife when everything is restored. But even so, he and his wife are on very different pages, so there's no support there either. And then his friends come. These were friends, and probably it was after months if you, we can infer that from a few things in the book, months had passed before his friends show up and they had traveled from good distances to be there. And they were friends at the end of the book that, that their friendship is restored, but after just a very few exchanges, Job and his friends begin to butt heads because their view of God was different from Job's view. Of God, And because their view of God was different, their view of Job was different. So at least Job's wife got that part right. She knew that he had done nothing to bring this kind of suffering on himself, which is the very thing that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2 and 4. Job's friends, however, had more of a, a Muslim view of God, a closed-system worldview of cause and effect, where the presence of suffering was the effect, and therefore the the cause had to be there, and the cause was sin in Job's life. That's what his friends believed. Because if Job was right, if his suffering was as random as it felt, then that meant that bad things could happen to them. So, Job's view of God was different from Satan's view. Job's view of his friends was different. Uh, 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 Eliphaz, Bildad, so far, and then later, to, to some extent, Elihu. Job's view of God was different from his wife. Curse God and die. By the way, remember, Satan said, God will, uh, Job will curse you to your face. And Job's wife said, Curse God and die. And then the, the story continues to unfold. But over the next three dozen or so chapters, we rec- are recorded for us cycles of dialogues that become more and more intense, more and more angry. And uh, just to summarize a couple of things, I have gone through this book in uh, and, and detail and, and harvested some of the sufferings of Job. And I can give you chapter and verse for these if you want them. But just listen to this catalog. First of all, just his physical affliction. Ulcerous sores or boils. Painful itching. Disfiguration. Eruptions that scab, crack, ooze, pus. Sores infected with worms. Fever with chills. Darkening of skin. Eyes red, swollen from weeping. Eye sockets, dark, sunken loss of appetite, nausea, diarrhea, sleeplessness, delirium, putrid breath, emaciation, constant excruciating pain. That's quite a list. Listen to the emotional affliction. Disturbed thoughts, insecurity, paranoia, rejection, hostility, fear, dismay, nightmares, loneliness, no desire to live, no inner peace, disillusionment, deep, bitter, and depression it's quite a list isn't it and as the book progresses Job himself becomes more and more angry and outraged not because of satan but because of what satan set in motion Uh, the the roaring lion has set a few things in motion and job's friends who were at first well-intentioned and concerned they became defensive and then accusing and then pretty nasty and at the end even Job has to repent. Ironically, think about this. Job's sin came about in reaction, not initially to Satan, but to well-intentioned believing friends. Can believers do that to each other? The answer is not, yes, they can. The answer is, yes, we can. Think with me about the idea of alienation. God calls us into community as the body of Christ. He gives us families as laboratories for understanding divine love, grace, forgiveness, patience. Satan isolates Job from all those things. He's alienated emotionally, loss of his children, loss of actual fellowship and support of his wife because he's at odds with her and her grief. He is alienated physically from his health. He is alienated socially from all so-called family and and uh, so-called friends. And worst of all, he is alienated spiritually. And here's what I mean by being alienated spiritually. Job's belief in God's sovereignty remained firm, but his theology His trust in the character of God did not relieve his suffering. It made it worse. And here's why. Job never questioned God's power. But he did begin to question God's goodness. And yet, when Job was feeling the most abandoned, God was giving him the most microscopic attention. God was not disengaged. Now, a lot more could be said about this, but without going through the dialogues of the book, I want you to turn to the end of the book, chapter 42. And I'm going to read the first verses. Then Job answered the Lord. This is after the dialogues and after his, his, uh, his uh, discussion with God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? These are, these are statements that Job made earlier in the book, so these reach back to earlier discussions. Job says, therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And, and he's talking about things that had disturbed him before, but now filled his heart with wonder. And he says, hear now, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. Again, those are those are phrases that reach back into earlier discussions in the book. And now they come here, full fruition. He says, Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He ends where he began, in ashes and in repentance before God. Having seen God more clearly, now he sees himself more clearly clearly and his present knowledge of god compared to his past knowledge was like hearing compared to sight job's friends over in the next the next few verses to come they were believers and their view of god and their view of job those both of those were distorted by their bad theology and they had to recognize that they were wrong and repent and have the relationship restored through forgiveness, and they did that. And then the book concludes with Job's restored health and his restored wealth. Everything was restored twofold. His family was restored, by the way, with the same wife. (laughs) But the reason why this is recorded is not because this is normative, that we are to claim that God will always bless you twofold or God will always create a happy ending. Scripture tells us very clearly that's not true. The reason why this is recorded for us is because that's what happened. And if you do the math, there's a very special, sweet truth here. If you do the math, if you look at chapter 1, if you look at chapter 42, everything that Job had was doubled. He had this many, and now he has twice as many. He had this many, he has except for one thing, one category, children. He had ten children, and now he has ten children again. Why wasn't that number doubled? Oh, yes, but see, here's where this sneaks in. There's the eternal view. From the eternal perspective, Job has ten children here, and he has ten children in heaven. He does have 20 children. Two facts are very clear in Scripture. Number one, Satan is our enemy. Number two, God holds Satan's reins. It's God who's in control. And when we've said this throughout 1 Peter, and I've said it a number of times, and and we'll repeat it again, God is not in heaven wringing his hands, looking down on us and saying, oh no, I didn't see that coming. That is not true. Satan's intentions are evil, but even against Satan's own will, he accomplishes God's ultimate will. Romans 8, doesn't say all things are good, but that all things work together for good. What? what? To accomplish his will for those who are called according to his purpose. God alone is worthy of our worship, our devotion, our adoration, Job learned this, whether in suffering or whether in prosperity. Peter described Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I I find it fascinating that of all the New Testament writers, it was Peter who described Satan like this. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter once? Get behind me. What's the next word? Satan. Exactly. But there's a connection between Peter and Satan and Job that you may not be aware of. of. At one very poignant moment, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I am praying for you. And Jesus could have just as easily said, sift you like wheat just like he did Job. So, Peter understood that Satan was alive and active, seeking to distort our view of God, especially during the hard times. And that's a lot of what 2 Peter is about. So, while while Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he is, as I mentioned earlier, a good student of your weaknesses and of mine. So when Peter says, be on your guard, well, exactly how? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says we are not ignorant of his strategies. So we can examine themes from Job, from 1 Peter, from the rest of the Bible to learn some specific things about Satan's strategies. And if you, and, and another very biblically-based, wise book to look at this is C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. But, better, but there are things to harvest from Scripture about this. Uh, and we've already talked about alienation and loneliness But let me add a few more things that Satan will do. These are some of his strategies. Satan has plans for you. He does. He has plans for you. Satan has a plan for your Bible. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God that you have for what? Spiritual warfare. Is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, when Jesus faced Satan, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, Instead of generating new scripture by speaking it, you know what Jesus said? It is written. Why? Because Jesus was setting the pattern for how we resist Satan. Satan wants you to be Bible neutral and Bible apathetic. He'd rather you fight for the religious freedom to read the Bible than to actually read the Bible. (laughs) He wants you to think that if you don't get something out of your devotions this morning, it was a waste of time, as though God doesn't get anything out of it. And he would rather have you read books about the Bible, even though they may be good, but he'd rather have you read books about the Bible than to read the living Word of God. Satan has a plan for your Bible. Satan has a plan for your family. He wants to pit husband against wife and wife against husband, like Job. He wants to pit child against parent and parent against child, like Esau and Jacob. Satan wants parents to warn their children about being disciplined, but then not follow through with the discipline, like Eli or Samuel or David. That's a big thing, actually, in Scripture. So that when you don't follow through, you teach them the valuable lesson that there are no real consequences for ignoring commands from authority figures, including ultimately the authority of God. He would, he would hate it if you took COVID-19 as an opportunity to become closer in your family and for parents to instruct their children more deeply about Jesus. Satan has a plan for your Bible. He's got a plan for your family. He's got a plan for your, our church. Satan, uh, God has given us to each other, but Satan wants to sow discord, to have friends impatient or resentful or ornery (laughs) and angry with one another. And that would just render us ineffective. Have you ever thought about how many ministries this little church touches on a national or international level? Satan hates this. And I want to add, if Satan is unaware of our spiritual impact, then something's wrong with us. Along the same lines, Satan wants us to be jealous of other ministries, other churches. He hates it when we announce some really neat event at another church down the road. Much less when we pray for a sister church. He doesn't like it when we take delight in rival ministries and how they flourish. One of the things I deeply appreciated about Dallas Seminary, uh, after college, uh, I was there for four years um, uh, before further graduate work. And um, in those four years, never once did I hear a sister seminary criticized. Never once. Now, we would talk about views, that, but I do remember once when Trinity Seminary in Chicago, which is a wonderful school, uh, they, were on, they were, uh, had a huge financial problem and their survival was in doubt, this was many years ago, and we took a day to pray for them. That made an impression on, those things made an impression on me almost as much as the things I learned in the class. So Satan has a plan for your Bible, has a plan for your family, has a plan for the church, the body of Christ. Satan also uh, finally has a a plan, and you can see this in Job, James, Hebrews, 2 Peter, uh, and, and as well as 1 Peter, has a plan for the way that you view suffering. He wants you to forget that the Bible says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I know that that's not high on our precious promise list to claim. But that's what scripture says. Satan wants you to think that if God really loves you, that he won't allow you to suffer. And if you do, it's not fair. But again, that reflects a low view of God and a low view of God's eternal plan. Remember Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph said to his brothers, who thought he was going to take revenge now that their father had died, he said to his brothers, he comforted them, saying, look, you meant it for evil. But, God meant it for good, for this present purpose, to keep these many people alive. So God was in control. And by the way, COVID-19 is not the one fact of history that has somehow escaped God's control. Meanwhile, God wants us to remember what Satan seems to forget. You remember it, he'll forget it, but here it is. There is no cosmic dualism here of good and evil. There's no equivalency between God and Satan. One day, God will be finished with Satan and he will take him into the lake of fire. My father died. Almost 10 years ago, in three weeks. It'll be 10 years. And uh, you old timers knew him. What you may not have known or remembered was that he experienced a lot of suffering. Uh, He lost his business that he devoted his life to 33 stores, they were gone. His family imploded. His church of 50 years split and died. His brothers, who he had worked with every day, both died. His beloved wife died. And there were days when mom and my uncles died over again because he would wake up and not remember that they were gone, want to call them, and so they died again. He also lost his health. He was bent over double at a right angle and uh, had trouble breathing and definitely had trouble walking and seeing things. He would look at things up from the side. During the last week of his life, when his body was shutting down and he was a bit more delusional, uh, the moments of coherence were more rare. Uh... Here's a glimpse of how he thought. Sunday, September 5th, 2010, he started talking about Jesus. And this is what he said. I want to hold him in my arms, just like I used to hold you. He's done so much for me. I don't know if that's allowed, but I want to. I want to hold him. May God grant that I become the kind of man who, when I'm delusional and suffering, would say something like that. That, my friends, in the midst of suffering, is what Hebrews calls looking unto Jesus. And if you're here, or if you're on the live stream, just listening to this, and there's, you're curious about what we believe or how we think about this, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And here's what I want you to take away from today. In Job chapters 9 and 19, those two chapters, in both those chapters, Job says he longs for a mediator, a redeemer, somebody to mediate between him and God. And if you'll allow me some license, it's, it's the cry of the human heart. Something like this. What does God know of suffering experientially? What could God know about experiencing pain, about experiencing rejection, about sorrow, about being rejected from your earthly family, about being, having your friends run away from you or, or, or turn against you, or being rejected by religious leaders, or being beaten, or mutilated, or slandered, enduring an unfair trial before an unfair judge? experiencing horrible execution, about being alone and forsaken. What could God know of those things? But God answers that cry. The rest of the scriptures tell us. The rest of the Old Testament promises that that Redeemer will come. And those prophecies about the Redeemer become more and more specific as the centuries unfold. And then He's born. He's here. Not as a conquering king, but as a helpless baby. Vulnerable. He lived for us and then God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Taking our sins in himself on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God watched as his son was killed and buried on the mission field but he didn't stay dead god ordained a plan from eternity past in which he himself would become the chief victim of his own plan the chief victim of maximum evil on the cross jesus bore your sins but he also bore your griefs and your sorrows So that we can now say, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Through faith in Jesus. And if you're wondering how, I'd love to talk with you about this. But through faith in Jesus, His righteousness becomes ours. And we are forgiven by His grace. Not by works of righteousness, which you've done, but according to His mercy. He saved us. So that Paul can say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, we have your spirit and the body of Christ and the truth of the scriptures before us. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you have worked in order to bring us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that we would finish well fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, which is our face-to-face enjoyment together and fellowship with him, for the joy set before him endured the cross, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to close and sing, and I'm going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to sing a different song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect. Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.